0: Luke chapter one, verse one through four says this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete the narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word had them delivered to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. I love that little passage because Luke, who is traveling with Paul, is making this letter that he's setting up. You know, a lot of biblical historians and theologians think that Luke and Acts were together. And as they were put together, uh, they wonder, who is this Theophilus? Is this a guy who maybe paid for the book or paid for the missionary event or paid for all of this? Or if you break apart the name, Theos and Philos, um, the Greek Philos meaning brotherly love and Theos meaning God, is this a letter that's written to anyone who is a lover of God, which that would be you and I. The reason why I even open up with this passage is that during this season, you and I have been forced to... Uh, worship in smaller groups or maybe just one with you in the and the television screen or laptop or whatever it is and, and and you've probably been challenged what is the foundation of your faith what is it that lays itself at the bedrock of what you believe we're going to be going into a series where our pastors are going to be teaching us um, a lot of different stories about christ from the gospels but one of the things that we're going to talk about today And this is one of those messages where if you're Friday night, you're cool. But if you're Sunday morning, you may need to get an extra cup of coffee because we're going to do a deep dive into the historicity and the validity of the Gospels themselves. Basically saying this, how truthful are the Gospels? How reliable is the New Testament? You know, the Bible is the most accurately translated and transmitted book from the ancient world, period. No other ancient book has as many or as early or more accurately copied manuscripts. Let's look at the Old Testament real quick. The Old Testament manuscript reliability is based on three factors. Their abundance, their dating, and their accuracy. You see, most works from antiquity survive on only a handful of manuscripts. For example, we only have seven manuscripts of Plato. We only have eight for Herodotus, and we only actually have 10 of the famous Caesar's Gallic Wars. Tacitus, who's considered the most famous of all Roman historians, we actually only have 20 manuscripts of his writing. Only the works of Demosthenes and Homer get into the hundreds. Yet even before 1890, where there was a scholar named Giovanni de Rossi, he was able to see that we had already in the 1800s over 700 Old Testament manuscripts. But since that time, we've discovered over 10,000 Old Testament manuscripts found in places like Cairo. And then, of course, in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls out of the Qumran community produced over 600 Old Testament manuscripts alone. Further, these Dead Sea Scrolls that we discovered in 1947, they contained fragments of the Old Testament, all of them except the book of Esther. And all of them dated before the end of the first century A.D., And some were as early as the 3rd century B.C., so 300 years before Christ. There's this papyrus called the Nash papyrus, and it's dated between the 2nd century B.C. and the 1st century A.D. Now, these manuscripts are accurately known internally and externally, meaning people who are biblical scholars, but also secular artists who are not biblical scholars necessarily. There's five major things that when you're an archaeologist or you're a historian that you would use in order to authenticate the Bible's actuality. First, it's well known that the Jewish scribal reference for scripture led to its careful transmission. Two, examination of duplicate passages. Places like Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 actually have some parallels to them. Third, the early Greek translation of the Old Testament is known as the Septuagint, and it substantially agrees with these Hebrew manuscripts that go back 300 years before the birth of Jesus. Fourth, the comparison of a document called the Samaritan Pentateuch with the same biblical books preserved within the Jewish tradition show an incredibly close similarity. And then five, these Dead Sea Scrolls provide manuscripts that date a thousand years earlier than most used to the Hebrew text. Now, if you were to compare all this with other ancient manuscripts, you need to understand that there's a huge reliability. In fact, minor variants consist only of minor slips. So what I'm saying is, is that if you were to take a look and compare all these things from from, from 300 years before Christ to 200 years, to even the Bible that you're holding in your hand today, The only major differences would be a small slip of the pen or a vowel misuse or um, a word being misspelled. What I'm trying to say is there's only really small things that are changing from these early, early documents to what we have today when it comes to the New Testament. In fact, only 13 small changes were discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So after a thousand years of copying, there's no real change of meaning and there's almost no changes in the wording. Now, when you get to the New Testament, it's even more pronounced. Because the reliability of the New Testament is established on three things as well. The number, the date, and the accuracy of the manuscripts. In fact, when you have a reconstruction of the original text, we see that the, that, that the New Testament is more precise than any other ancient text. In fact, the number of New Testament manuscripts is overwhelming. You remember how I told you how we only had like seven manuscripts of Plato? We only had uh, 10 for Caesar's Gallic Wars. Well, when you get to an example of like Homer's Iliad, which is the most produced ancient script outside of the New Testament we have, you have 643 transcripts of Homer's Iliad from the ancient times. However, when you compare that with the New Testament, you have 643 ancient manuscripts of, of Homer, but we have over 5,700 ancient scripts of the New Testament. The New Testament, bottom line, is simply the best textually supported book from the entire ancient world. In fact, the earliest undisputed New Testament manuscript is, is, is this document that we call the John Ryland's Papyrus, and it's dated between 117 A.D. to 138 A.D., So you're talking about like maybe one generation after the time of Christ that we have a document of. In fact, the whole book is what we call the Bodmer Papri is available from around 200 years AD. And most of the New Testament, including all the gospels, so all the stuff that uh, Pastor Carl, Pastor Rob, Pastor Rahm, everybody's gonna be teaching over uh, in the next few weeks. We have enough of those dates uh, going back to 250 years AD. Noted British manuscript scholar Sir Frederick Kenyon once wrote, I quote, the interval between the dates or the original composition of the earliest extent, it's evident that something so small would actually be just negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. We really need to understand that the authenticity and the general integrity of the New Testament May be regarded as firmly established. Listen, no other ancient book has been tested and proved to be found true like the way our New Testament has. Now, an interesting study was taken a while back. Bruce Metzger, who's a Princeton professor, he lined up the Iliad of Homer, he lined up the writings of Hinduism, uh, 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 the main book of Hinduism, the Mahabharata, and, and he took the New Testament. And what he saw was in the Hindu scriptures, there was about 90% accuracy with the original documents. So not bad. When he took Homer's Iliad, there was about 95% of, of Homer's Iliad lined up with the original text that we had had. But when it got to the New Testament, you took the original text that we found. Remember dating about a generation after the time of Christ? We lined those up with the current texts of today. And they found that only half of 1% was off. That means we're in the Hindu scriptures, the best they could get was 90%. The best they could get with with, uh, uh, Homer's Iliad was 95%. But when it came to the New Testament, we were 99.9% correct with that of the ancient text going back a generation of, of the time of Christ. This can be said of no other book in the entire ancient world. So what am I saying in summary? The vast numbers, the early dates... The unmatched accuracy of the Old Testament and the New Testament manuscripts copies and lets us know that the Bible's reliability, the same Bible that's on your phone, the same Bible that you may be holding in your hand, is more accurate on so many areas. Its substantial message has been undiminished through the centuries, and its accuracy on even minor details has been confirmed. The Bible that you have on your phone, the Bible that we hold in our hands today, Is the most accurate ancient document we have, bar none. Now, when you get to the Gospels, it gets even more precise because the soundness of the four Gospels depends on their early dating and their authorship of people who knew Jesus personally. You see, there was corroboration from the Gospels outside by way of men like Papias. Papias is a student of the Apostle John. So you have John, who's, who's a disciple, and then John started discipling Papias. And Papias tells us in a number of his texts that the four Gospels were either written by an Apostle themselves, like Matthew and John, or by an Apostle's associate. Mark was probably Peter's Gospel, and Luke is Paul's Gospel. So the Gospels, as they start circulating themselves throughout the ancient world, were all acknowledging that while these letters were going out, a lot of these same people who wrote these books were still alive. F.F. F. Bruce, famous theologian, has argued that, 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 that the opponents were the functional equivalent of modern cross-examiners. Meaning that there were people even in the first century who were making sure that these documents were actually written by the apostles or written by people who were firsthand uh, people who walked with, with, with those actual disciples. When they had the means, the motive, and the opportunity to refute the gospel, they would try, and yet the gospel kept coming again and again and again as being accurate, written by these men, and written by the people who actually walked with Christ. The fact that the first of the three gospels were written prior to the fall of Jerusalem in eighty seventy shows us a lot. So real quick, a history lesson. In eighty seventy. 70 we had an emperor named Titus. He was, a, he was a Roman general at the time, and he came and he sacked and he burned Jerusalem down. In fact, he leveled the city so that one stone was not laid on top of another because he saw that there was gold inside the mortars, and he wanted to bring out the gold that was inside the mortar of the blocks. Just like Jesus predicted that the temple, that there would not be one stone left on top of another. Well, In the world of archaeology and history, what we learn from these kind of facts is that we're able to see that because of the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, the gospel of John would come soon after, that the way the wording takes place in these gospels show that these were only about a generation after the time of Jesus. Now, this is a lot of stuff to take down. But what I find is fascinating is that if you remember, there's a story in the Gospels about Jesus being asked if he should pay taxes. And Jesus goes down to a fish and he takes the coin out of the fish's mouth. The coin that he takes out has the face of Tiberius, who's the current Caesar at the time. If you were to look at that story and then realize, we actually have thousands of more documents that Jesus did that coin from the fish's mouth than we did that if Tiberius even existed as Caesar. Like any ancient book, though, the New Testament has a kind of a strange feel about it. And as we start walking through the Gospels in the next several weeks, I think you're going to see that some of this stuff is kind of strange, whether it's customs or phrases. It's always fascinating to me as an apologeticist that people often contradict and come to me with things like, well, the Bible is just a Western story or Jesus is a Western hero or a Western God. Actually, the Bible is an Eastern book. In fact, a lot of times in Western mythology, we'll take a look at something and say it's direct, right? That the hero directly did this or the hero directly did that. If you kind of want a modern day version of this in the story of the Avengers, it's pretty obvious that Thanos is the bad guy and he's got this big glove and with a snap, he's going to end everybody, right? I love superhero movies, but they're very classic Western literature. Eastern literature isn't really like that. Eastern literature kind of talks around an issue and lets you as the reader get right to the issue. So it's really interesting to me that when people come and talk about the Bible, they say, I don't know, it's really strange. It's kind of broken up in a lot of places, but that's classic of Eastern philosophy and Eastern religion. What's interesting is that these kind of arguments naturally uh, raise a question on whether or not we can trust the New Testament. But I want to close out today with this. There's six simple statements that most archaeologists, anthropologists, and credible historians, not the guys on the ancient aliens kind of thing, but actual real historians use that can affirm on whether or not a document can be trusted, and the New Testament passes all of them. The first thing that we can use is this. The books of the New Testament were recognized through a careful filtering process. There was a very careful process from the first first to the fourth century. It was a catalytic moment where the books of the New Testament were being formed in the use of scripture because a lot of people are worshiping Jesus. They're following Jesus. And so they wanted to really make sure, hey, is this stuff legitimate? So we had to know a couple of things. Do we know who wrote the book? How well do these other books fit in with the books that we know that were actually written by some of the apostles? Are the themes right? Are they the same? Are they agreed on by so many people? So the first thing that has to go is how reliable is the actual text? The second thing is that the New Testament was based on reliable sources and carefully used and faithfully communicated. The Bible is both like other books and unlike other books. You see, Luke, for example, in chapter one of Luke explains that he uses sources and that Jesus taught that the spirit would help the apostles recall what Jesus has taught them as we see in places like John 14. So to argue that the Bible is inspired by God does not dismiss that the human elements certain make up part of the book. What are these sources? How are they handled? The text surrounding Jesus stresses the role of eyewitnesses, as we see in Luke chapter 1, verse 2 that we read at the very beginning. An apostolic association ensures the account's credibility. So the fact that we know that Matthew wrote the book of Matthew lets us know that this is pretty legit. The fact that Mark goes to Peter, lets us know that this is pretty legit. The fact that we know that Luke studies under Paul lets us know that it's legit. And then after AD 70, when most likely John writes his gospel, John walked with Christ and sat with him in his teaching. I think the third thing though that we have to understand is if you're a student of history is noting that truth also means understanding that history is going to be complex. Because differences in accounts don't necessarily equal contradiction, nor does the subsequent reflection mean a denial of history. What I mean is that is this trustworthiness of a certain document simply affirms that the assessed account is an accurate portrayal of what takes place and a credible explanation of what emerges, not that it's the way that only events were seen. Meaning this, we need to understand that maybe sometimes in our 21st century world, it's hard for us to really associate and say, well, that couldn't have happened because way back in the 1st century, things worked different. We have the internet now. We have a highway system. We have a completely different way of operating. We have printed word. They did things in the 1st century and in oral tradition. Okay, So you can't really judge something that happened in the 1st century and in the 21st century and see that those are the same. A fourth point that's real critical is trustworthiness demands not a ton of knowledge, but adequate knowledge on the topic. And what I mean by that is this, when you get to places like John 21, 25, where it says, and there also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them was written down, I suppose that not even the world itself could contain the books could be written. You see, when people call scripture trustworthy, they're arguing that its testimony is not contrary to what happened and is sufficient to give us a meaningful understanding of God and his work for us, like in places like 2 Timothy 3.16. So what I mean by that is this, speaking accurately is not the same thing as speaking exhaustively. You can say a lot of words and mean nothing, and you can say a few words and mean exactly the truth. So just because we don't have a lot of things on this, although we've already argued that there's a lot of proof for the Bible, what we also understand is that not only do we have a lot of things, but it's all accurate. Fifthly, we need to understand that archaeology teaches us to respect the content of, signature, of, of, of Scripture. Archaeology seldom can prove that events take place. As, as somebody who studied biblical archaeology, this comes into my world all the time. And I'll give you a great example. For years and years and years and years, all right, back in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, we didn't think that there were some parts of the Bible that were necessarily true because we couldn't find the pool of Bethseda or the pool of Bethsaida, all right, however you want to translate it. In John chapter five, there's this story about a pool that describes of having five porticos. Now, what's amazing is that because we couldn't find that, they thought, well, surely that's got to be wrong. Like that can't be. That can happen. But what's interesting is that in 1871, a French architect named Maus was restoring an old church, and he found a cistern that was only 30 meters away. A number of times later, back in, uh, later on in 1957 to 1962, there were more excavations into this place that the French uh, architect was designing And in that, they they ended up discovering that there were two pools large enough to hold a sizable amount of water. And at the base of those two pools were five cisterns. It could hold water. It could hold people. And now in today's world, nobody really doubts the existence of this pool in John chapter 5. In fact, Lord willing, if you're going on the Israel trip, we'll go to these pools. That for hundreds of years, people thought, well, it didn't even exist until modern archaeology confirm some of these things. So sometimes we can't just, we can use archaeology as a tool, but you can't use that as the only tool. Lastly, I'm just going to find out with this as far as the New Testament's availability and accuracy. The Bible's claim for miracles are realistic when one considers the response of the resurrection. And what am I saying in that? I'm saying this, a lot of times people who are skeptic about the Bible, they'll be skeptical about the Bible because they can't see really that there's a, like all these different miracles. Did Jonah really get swallowed by a whale? Did an ax head really float? Did this really happen, all right? Did Noah's Ark really have all the different types of animals? Well, the thing is this, if Jesus was resurrected, if a dead man could get out of a tomb, And I don't even have time to go into the validity and the historical accuracy of the resurrection of Jesus and how it's been studied. But if God could raise a man from the dead, then surely he could do a lot of these other miracles as well. Just something to think about. Now, I know I've given a lot of data and a lot of stuff, and we've got resources down below where, for those of y'all that are like me and kind of want to go into even a deeper dive down the nerd of, 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 of studying the Bible, you can check all that stuff out. But why do I even bring all this stuff up? Well, I bring all this stuff up because of this. What is the foundation of your faith during this time? What is it that you're hanging your faith on? I'm telling you, our faith, if it's going to weather the storms, it can't be built on sand. It has to be built on the rock. And the rock is Jesus Christ himself. And in the book of John, we're told that the word of God, the words that come out of him, the logos, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that everything centers around Christ. One of the things that I absolutely love about Carl, and there's a lot of things to love about him, but one of the things I love about him is, is I want this to be about Jesus. I don't want our church to hinge itself on just one issue or one item or one subject. We're gonna be a church that is about Jesus. Well, if it's gonna be about Jesus, what did Jesus say? In fact, I love that in the, in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40, verse eight, it says the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Listen, when this world is done, only two things are gonna, are, are, are gonna go from this world into the new heaven, the word of God and our spirit. And there'll come a time where our spirit is judged, all right? And our spirit is not gonna be judged on what's good enough, but on that of Christ. Let, let me kind of explain. So at the end of Jesus' time on earth, the disciples are coming to him, and they're a little confused. And Thomas reaches out and speaks up to Jesus. He says, Jesus, I, I don't know the way. I don't know the way. Which, by the way, that was the name of the early church. They didn't call themselves Christians. They were known as the way, or in the Greek. Jesus returns, returns around, and in John chapter 14, he says, Thomas, he doesn't say Thomas, but basically he's saying to Thomas and to all the disciples, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And so what Jesus is saying is, hey, if you want to know the way, the way to God, the way to heaven, the way to righteousness, I'm the only way. Now, the interesting thing is, and we were talking about this earlier tonight, there's no mention of the word the in the Greek language. However, the way the direction that the Greek syntax is going, it lets us know that it's a singular account. So it's almost like Jesus is saying, I am the only truth. I am the only life. And I am the only way. And no man will ever get to God except through him. So the reason why I'm talking about all this stuff about the validity of the Bible is that we need to trust Jesus and the words that he's saying and understand that they are the truth. Those are the things that we'll hang our hats on. A lot of times when people come to me, they say, I think God's saying this to me. And a lot of times I'll say, well, where in the Bible did you find that? Because the Holy Spirit's never gonna contradict what's in the word of God, okay? In fact, he'll use it to substantiate what's going on in the word of God. And the word of God tells us that there's going to come a day where he's going to divide the people that were fans and the people who were followers. The fans are people who just kind of stand off and go, hey, I think Jesus is a great idea, all right? And if that's you, then you really need to listen to the next few minutes, all right? The people who are followers of Christ are the people who've said, I recognize that he's the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Now, for some of you out there, you're gonna be like, well, I'm a pretty good person, right? I've been looking around at other people. I've been seeing other people on the island. I've been watching things on the news. I've been seeing things on Facebook and you know Twitter and Instagram. And I'm pretty good when I'm compared to everybody else. Jonathan Edwards, Tony Evans' son, Famous preacher tells a great story that one day he was down in the gym and he was, he was shooting basketballs and he was dunking and he started dunking again and again and again. And he was like, man, I'm dunking the basketball. And so he ran into the office to go tell his dad, Pastor Tony Evans, and said, hey, come out dad and watch me dunk the ball. So the pastor got up and he walked out into the gym. And as he walked out into the gym, he was like, hey, uh, uh, all right, I'm ready to see you. And he ran up and the son dunked the ball. And Jonathan said, man, I slammed the ball. I was like so proud of man I was like LeBron. I was like walking over. I was flexing and my dad just looked at me and was like, hmm. And then he walked away. Jonathan Edwards says, I followed up to my dad and I was like, Dad, 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 you're not impressed? And he said, My dad looked at me and he said, Son, you had, the, you had the rim at six feet. Raise it back up to the main standard and then let's see what you can do. And Edwards points this out, or Evans points this out and says, You know, when I raised up to the real standard, I wasn't able to make it. It's when I lowered the standard. And that's what a lot of us are doing. We've lowered the standard. We judge our Christianity based on other people. But the Bible tells us that we're gonna be judged against Christ. And when we judge ourselves against Christ, how do you fare? Now, if you're like me, you're not gonna fare so well because maybe you're good with like other people. But when you're judged against Christ, I fail. So what I had to do was I had to say three simple words, simple simple phrases that I teach my kids as, as, as my wife, Danielle, and I are raising up our daughters. That when we do something wrong, we say we're sorry. That when we want to ask for something, we say please. When we receive something, we say thank you. So if you're if you're watching this, and maybe maybe you're like, man, I missed all the dates and all the stats and all that other kind of, you know, kind of university kind of stuff, but this is what I came here for. I want you to understand this. You're not gonna be judged on other people. You're gonna be judged against Christ. And if you're falling short, then what you need to do is you need to say this. I'm sorry. Sorry for what? Well, sorry that. I've not taken you, Jesus, at your word, that I've not taken you seriously enough. I've not let you be the Lord of my life. Listen, Jesus is either the Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And you can say, I'm sorry. Now, Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty of our rebellion against God. He, that's why he went on the cross. So you can say, Jesus, thank you. you know, please forgive me. And thank you that you died on the cross. Would you please come into my heart? So maybe that's something you want to even do right now to say something along the lines of, I'm sorry that I've been rebelling. Jesus, thank you that you died on the cross for me. Would you please forgive me and come into my life? If you're praying that, then what I want to ask you to do is text anchor to the number on the screen right now. And, 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 And you don't even, like it's not a bunch of magic words or anything like that. It's just basically an understanding of saying, hey, I prayed And I want to do some serious work about Jesus coming into my life. Let me even just pray for you right now. Father, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you that your word is reliable. I thank you that it trumps things that we found in science, things that we found in archaeology. I thank you that you've left us so many different things that we can understand that you mean business. And when you gave us your word, you made sure that it was accurate and it was truth so that we could drink it. Drink it like water, not 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 polluted water, uh, but like from a fresh spring that's been filtered and is the real deal. Your word is the real deal. So as we read it and as we look at it in the next couple of weeks, we can rely on it. And Lord, I thank you that you would provide clarity. Thank you for the people that are wanting to do some serious business with you either either Friday night or Sunday morning, whenever they're watching this, may you bless them and may they know that they are loved. Amen.